Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, before we dive into your excellent new book, The Joy Choice, um, I wanted our listeners to get a sense of, of who you are and how you came to do this work. So could you give us the cliff notes on um, how you found your way into exercise science and in particular psychology around habit formation and health behaviors? Sure. Thank you. So, wow. Well, there was a specific incident that brought me into this onto this path, and I'll 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 give you the cliff notes. And it is that I was getting um, my first master's degree in kinesiology, and we were doing a study with cancer survivors, looking to see if exercise could help them um, with anxiety and depression. And it's important to know that these were people who were about four and a half years after um, treatment, so they were basically living normal lives. They weren't in treatment, and um, we gave them that uh, one group got exercise. It was a randomized control trial. And what we found was that the group that exercised did improve psychologically compared to the group that didn't exercise. Um, but part of the uh, question, the study design, was to call everyone back about three months later and talk to them, do focus groups, and give them questionnaires again. And, you know, this this was my first quote unquote rigorous study, and I was really looking at how people were, you know, how, what they were looking like, the expressions on their faces. And I saw people smiling and laughing. And I thought, wow, we didn't just do good research, we actually help people in their real lives. But I was wrong because what we were shortly to discover through our focus groups was that almost everyone had stopped exercising. Um, when our study had ended three months before, and I was shocked. And so I asked people, well, why did you stop exercising? And they just talked about how busy they were, how many things they had to do, this and that, work and families and aging parents. And what became clear to me was that, you know, these people um, – had felt comfortable exercising, committing to exercise for our study, but they had not felt comfortable or been able to commit to a self-care activity like physical activity for themselves. And it was that realization that, wow, people who faced a life-threatening illness don't have the, the mindset or the skill set to prioritize their own self-care, then, you know, we have a real problem in society. And I was like, I declared to myself, this is my problem and I'm going to solve it. And so everything I've been doing since then has been in service of understanding what is everything from a very wide perspective that gets in the way of creating sustainable self-care behaviors. And then, of course, what do we need to do to turn that around? And before we dive into that, I'm curious, were you an athlete or an avid exerciser yourself growing up? You know, I wasn't. So, well, I w you know, I wouldn't say I definitely am, was never a quote-unquote athlete. I started jogging when I was about 13 years old and and that you know, that was my entree into physical activity. And so since that time I've been active, but I'm I'm about as unathletic as they come. Got it. So you approach this really from a intellectual angle before a physical angle. Some people I feel get into this work because they've personally realized the benefits when vigorous activity is such a part of their lives. Um, and it sounds like you really came into this more just as a fascinating research problem. Is that fair? I, I would say yes and I I was very personally empowered from running and again jogging. I was not a fast runner. The first time, do you remember Walkmans? I think I listened to Prince's um 1999 CD jogging around the park close to where I lived and it was just I think I got into it because I wanted to understand how physical activity could help empower people in the way that it had empowered me. Love it. And that's something that we at The Growth Equation um, discuss all the time, that it's 
really all relative. So physical activity for a world-class elite athlete looks a lot different for someone that has never used their body before. And the challenge might be different, but the impact that it has is um, can be profound in, in both cases. Absolutely. So, so I want to dive in to, um, to your book because I loved it. I know Steve, who can't be here today, loved it as well. And I think a good starting place is to set some context and have you help us do that. In the past three years, I would say there's been this big movement towards the development of habits and how habits are so impactful in our life and in helping us achieve our goals and in helping us stick to desirable behaviors. And in the joy choice, you agree, but you also add some nuance on habits. Uh, so maybe could you start there? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the first thing I want to say is I want to be very clear that, you know, habit formation is very helpful. And I depend on it for my own flossing. I depend on it to feed my dog in the morning. Um so I want to make sure before I dive into the nuance that we're going to talk about that people understand that I really do value habits because for certain things, they're very helpful. Um, the, the nuance that you're alluding to is the notion that habit formation has been promoted um, really across the board as something that everyone can use for almost for basically every behavior. And, you know, when we take a look at some of the assumptions that that those um, contentions are based on, they don't really pan out. And, and I want to start, do you want me to pause there and ask me any questions or do you just kind of want me to dive in? Yeah, I think it'd be great if you dive in. You're the pro, so you're gonna you're gonna um, preempt whatever question I'd ask you and probably do it more elegantly anyways. <laughs> so to let your listeners know, um, my perspective on healthy lifestyles, motivation, and behavior change has always contextualized a behavior within the context, the multiple contexts that people live within, as well as the cultural context that we've learned um, both how to think about the behavior, how to approach it, and how to do it. And, and so my perspective on habit formation for complex behaviors like healthy eating and exercise comes out of that bias, if you will. So um, one of the assumptions is that anyone can form habits. And um, I start the book, as you know, with my husband, who I call a habiter, who's someone who reflects the type of uh, person that research suggests are more um, successful adopting habits. And that's someone who's innately disciplined, who's very organized. Um, it makes it easier to create the very precise context and cues that are necessary for the habit loop to form. Um, and so that's one of the assumptions. But if we flip to me, I'm what I call an unhabiter. I'm someone who isn't quite as disciplined, who isn't quite as organized, and I juggle a lot of roles and responsibilities, which means I have a lot of unexpected things coming at me all the time. So for habit formation to succeed, you need to have a habit loop. And there's three parts to the, in general, you know, a habit loop is considered as having three parts. A cue, the thing that um, cues you, this is the moment that, um, well, actually, let me go through it first. So there's a cue that cues a specific behavior, whether it's flossing or, like I said, feeding my dog or doing the dishes or exercising. And then there's some type of reward that reinforces um, doing this behavior. And it's, and it's something that happens in the brain where, oh, I like this. I want it. Next time I see the cue, whether it's the toothbrush after brushing and I put it in its holder, then I reach for the floss, that thing becomes automatic. And the value of not having to think about a lot of things is, is, is high, is really high. 
the challenge is, is that if the cue gets disrupted, like in order for habit formation to stick, to in order for a habit to form, the the whole thing is based on this unwavering cue that gets you into that automatic um, mode that gets you to do the behavior. But if you have a lot of unanticipated things coming your way, you can easily see how the cue could get disrupted. So I'm going to pause there and see if you have any questions. No, I think that you're explaining this really, really well. And I'm going to attempt to make it concrete and pose another question as a result of that. And then we'll move into the the trigger and the reward part of the habit loop. So let's say that I am somebody that struggles to exercise and I'm using a more traditional habit approach. And the cue is that after I make my coffee, I leave my gym bag or my gym shoes, my running shoes right there. And I see them. And as the coffee is brewing, then that's my cue to go ahead and put on my gym shoes, take my gym bag, go to the gym, whatever it may be. And what you're saying is that's fine. But what happens if you're traveling or if your coffee machine breaks or if your young kid is up all night? And life can get in the way of the structure that often underlies a consistent cue. Is that right? Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I think one of the reasons that my husband has established his exercise cue as 5.30 in the morning is because um, it's a time when no one else is up that he won't have any disruptions. It's just going to be up to him. He sleeps in his exercise clothes. I mean, that's how committed he is to not thinking his way to exercise. And it works for him. And it's important to say that this approach does work for people. Um, But because of the nature of how um, unvariable the cue has to be, most people's life context just don't permit that luxury. So yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So then my follow-up question is, I'll use myself. My cue to exercise, which is something that I do consistently, I would call it an internal cue. So it doesn't matter if I'm traveling at an Airbnb, at a hotel, if I'm home. It doesn't matter if I slept well or if I didn't. My mind-body system just kind of knows that I better do some kind of formal, structured, physical activity five days a week. And if I don't, I start to feel restless. I start to feel not great. And those are the internal cues that then lead me to train. So how do you think about that? That's fantastic, Anne. I I think that specific situation is there's a really wonderful discussion that habit researchers are having in the literature. And, you know, my understanding is that they're talking about these types of things. But I would say the formal habits that, you know, are popularly promoted to people are not referring to that type of internal cue. If we're talking about the habit loop, you know, that people are being told is the way to go, what you're describing for yourself, I wouldn't say um, reflects that three-point habit loop. Now, like you, I have this internal, you know, I don't have to do something five days a week. I try to do something every day a week. And um, if it doesn't happen on any given day, it's no big deal. And so, but I, like you, I feel, I don't feel as good. And I, I, and I, I don't even, you know, necessarily get some type of euphoric experience. It's just like, this is part of my self-care. This feels good. But I don't think what you're talking about in, in my mind doesn't reflect habit formation. What I am specifically referring, and I, and I do think the, the way that you've developed this internal drive to move your body, I, I think that is a more favorable type of approach where we want people to internalize the experience and the benefits they get from moving their bodies such that 
they want to figure out how to make it work, whether they're traveling or at home. Now, I do want to say, I'm not saying that planning isn't important because I think planning is important. It's just that the the way that we have been taught to form habits with the habit loop or to offload it into some kind of unconscious um, decision it isn't my take on things, the, the literature, my, the health coaching I've been doing for almost three decades, and just understanding the types of challenges in scheduling that people have every day. I just don't think habit formation for complex behaviors can work for most people. Yeah. And I think that we see this um, particularly in individuals that are attempting to lose weight in support of their health in a sustainable way. And what ultimately happens is that if you want to attempt to use the habit loop strategy, you have to limit your life quite profoundly. You can't travel. You can't go out to dinner with friends. Um, It has to become pretty rigid. And what often happens in my experience talking to people about this is that this is one of the many reasons, and and some are very biological as well, while people often have this yo-yo effect where they lose weight and then it comes back. And there's this whole set point theory where some of it is hormonal and and all that. But I also think it's because during during that focused six month period of losing weight, people are willing to design a large portion of their life around the habit loop. But then to your point, once that period's over, well, you can't carry your trigger behavior reward with you to the Bahamas or out to dinner with your friends or when life gets in the way. So what I hear you saying, and I'm going to do my best to summarize, is that habit loops are great. They require a lot of structure. And what ends up happening is if you can't leave them behind and still be healthy, then you end up getting in trouble when life happens. Is that fair? Um, yeah, I just want to take a, I just want to see if there's anything that I think I want to add to that. I, I think it's just really important to point out that, um, you know, forming a, it's very, a cue that's in the bathroom, like flossing, where there isn't a lot of potential for disruption makes a great deal of sense. But once we step outside of the bathroom into lives that might contain hubbub and, you know, unanticipated things, it's just, you know, habit loops really can't survive in that type of environment. So um, then the question is, what's the alternative? And I think you use the word rigid, and I think that's a really important word because it's not even just habit formation that has promoted rigid thinking around how we approach eating changes in eating or meditating or exercising more. You know, what I, I refer to it as the old outdated story of behavior change that really is ask people to be extremely precise, to do the same thing every time, whether it's a habit or not. And that success looks the same every day. But you know, that's not how most long-term projects in our life um, pan out. They don't look the same every day. So if a habit loop has the goal of automating decisions, so you don't have to think of them, you don't have to decide, what you argue is actually life often takes us out of these habit loops and we do have to make a choice. Can you start to talk about how you garnered this idea that, um, and again, I want to respect what you said at the beginning, habits are great, developing habits are great. Um, so your approach isn't necessarily opposed to them, but it's definitely complementary. or perhaps it's the habit loop works until it gets in the way and it often gets in the way pretty early on, life gets in the way, and then you've got to start to make choices. So when did you realize that you wanted to hone in and research the moment-to-moment decision-making that we're constantly doing around all behaviors in our life, particularly health behaviors? Wow, that's a great question. So, you know, I started thinking about the moment-to-moment decisions a long time ago. When When my first book came out and I was, you know, training professionals how to implement the methods, I was 
talking about the fact that we needed to think about behaviors, even sustainable behavior, not as the sustainability aspect, but the moment-to-moment decisions that actually underlie sustainability. So I would say I started talking about that in 2014 and 2015, but that wasn't really a part that I had included in my first book. And so over time, I became very interested in the literature on this topic and what the researchers who had been studying this is specifically, I've been very interested in executive functioning because that's you know, the the brain system that I think more, we need to help more people support for these momentary decisions. Um, so I've been thinking about this a long time and, you know, the process of the book started about five years ago. And as you know, from writing books, the moment from the time you have an idea to, you know, the, the publication date, which for me is a week from tomorrow, you know, five years, you know, have, has gone by. Um, The other thing is, as a health coach, uh, you know, I always considered when people, when things got in their way and my clients come to me and they say, oh, I failed, it didn't go right, it didn't happen. And for me, and I don't know if you feel the same way as a coach, but that's where the gold is. It's, 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 you know, unpacking what got in the way. Was it a belief you held? Was it an unexpected challenge that you didn't know how to negotiate or navigate? And so for me, then the problem space, the space of creativity then becomes the actual problems, the unanticipated challenges that um, we confront to our plans. And so it was trying to understand how to solve that problem both in my coaching practice and then, you know, as a scholar. And it was the combination of those two things that motivated me to write the book, The Joy Choice. So let me tee this up, and I'm just going to have you riff on it. I don't know if it's going to be a question as much as a statement. So I think that what often tends to happen is that people vacillate between these two extremes. In one extreme is what I'll call rigidity and execution on their goals. So they don't allow themselves any wiggle room. It often has a limiting effect on their life, not in a judgmentally bad way. Sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's good, sometimes it just is. And as a result, they're able to stick to the health behavior. So this is the person that is struggling with eating healthy that decides that they're never going to go out to dinner. So they sacrifice going out to dinner with their friends and their family, and perhaps they gain a healthier way of eating. Um, This could also be the person that is committed to a streak of consecutive days running, and they'll run through injuries, which probably isn't healthy for them, but they have their streak. So I'm going to call that, in my mind, rigidity on the one end. The other extreme is people say, well, oh, yeah, deciding in the moment sounds great, but I never make the right decision. So if they release from that rigidity, they're just kind of out in the abyss and the behavior completely falls apart. So that is certainly what I observe when I look at people um, trying to particularly start new behaviors. So can you walk us through the middle ground? And I know that is such a big part of your book. So maybe let's start with why can't we just do the thing that we want to do? What is so hard about saying, hey, like I'm going to eat healthy and I define healthy in this way? Why do we have to stay in our house and not go out to dinner with friends lest the whole thing fall apart? Well, it's, it's, there's, I have so many things I want to say, Brad. Um, The first thing is just to respond to what you just asked me. And, you know, the problem comes when we have a very limited definition of what healthy eating looks like, what it has to be in order to be successful. And that's why it falls apart. If we have a limited definition, then, and and again, going back to your rigidity, um, precision, 
that works really well for some people. Um, and so I just, you know, I, I may say that a few times because I want to make sure your listeners know that I know it works for some people. The problem is, and I, I'm going to even um, be as bold as to say, I don't think it can work for most people because I think something that is rigid, just it, it, with the way life is, it cannot stand the test of time. And to, to, to before I dig even deeper into what you just said, I just want to say, you know, it, it would be like, it would be like saying, um, about a kid, you know, if my child, I'm serving broccoli and if my child doesn't eat broccoli that I cooked for dinner, then that's a fail. And I'm just going to stop trying to feed my kid vegetables at all, or I'm going to starve them for the next week. I mean, it's, we bring a rigidity to healthy eating and exercise that we would never consider bringing to other important life areas like parenting or our professional careers or our friendships. You know, it's like I made a plan to meet a, a friend for a drink and two hours before she has something urgent come up and she calls me and cancels. It would be like me saying, this friendship is over. It failed. And, and yet, when it comes to healthy eating and exercise, we bring we we don't do this. We're not rigid in these other areas because we know intuitively, it's organically that when it comes to sustaining a friendship, a relationship, uh, our our professional path, we have to ebb and flow. We have to flex and contract. And so, but we haven't been taught to bring that grace, if you will to healthy eating and exercise. I love that um, metaphor because that's so true that there's just, um, there's such a rigidity around these things. And I think it does trace back to, you mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation that a part of behavior is cultural. And I think it traces back to what we learn, which is that it's not okay for health behaviors to ebb and flow. You either do them or you don't. Whereas in the case of friendships or parenting, there's a much more learned flexibility. Like the reference point, the expectation is that these things are going to ebb and flow and be flexible. But for some reason with health behaviors, we we don't expect that to be the case. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's why I keep referring to this as a story of behavior change, because the cultural narrative, and it's I, I I don't blame anyone for this. It's the way the narrative has naturally evolved. It's evolved out of, you know, the fitness industry. It's evolved out of research, you know, on um, the, the doses of physical activity that research finds to be beneficial, you know, in, in nutrition research, what we know. So it's a very natural evolution out of a medical model, right? Which is, which is dose based and prescription given. So it makes complete sense, but here's just a real brief story. I was talking about the need to be flexible and, and a similar conversation that you and I are having speaking to a group of physicians. And, um, one of the people in the audience stood up and, you know, she was really upset and angry, which as you know, as a speaker is kind of like, oh my gosh, what do I do? You know? And she basically said, you know, how dare you suggest that my patients, you know, do this lower level, um, physical activity, you know, they won't, their health won't be protected if, if, if they're able to ebb and flow and do less than is what is ideal. And, you know, at first I didn't know what to say because it was so kind of scary to have someone be so angry. But then I, you know, fortunately an answer came to me and I just smiled at her and I said, well, how's that working out for you? Because the reality is we might have an ideal, but if most people can't sustain an ideal, then they have nothing. And so really the the biggest job of the joy choice is, is to help explain how all or nothing thinking, which is, by the way, as you know, I'm sure you know this because everyone I talk to has been telling me this who works with people. And I know I found this to be true. All or nothing thinking is this um, petrified, embedded belief system that 
people just have such a hard time letting go of, even when they want to. And so the joy choice is what I am hoping to deliver to the world as the perfect imperfect option to that lets you do something instead of nothing. Um, and I'm going to stop there because I still didn't address your other thing about the other your the other side of the rigidity coin. Well, let's dive in. Let's dive into that because that to me is the meat of the book. So, how do we allow ourselves flexibility, exist in an imperfect world, without everything going to crap? Because my sense is that's what listeners are thinking right now which is all this sounds great, but if I try to stick to these challenging behaviors in day-to-day life with a flexible mindset, I'm just never going to be able to do it. Well, and you're right. And you know, every talk I give nowadays, that is someone raises their hand and says, well, how, how do I not develop the bad habit of not doing anything then? And it's a really valid question. So here's the multi-phase answer to that. First of all, People have to have a compelling reason for doing whatever behavior we're talking about. If people are trying to become regularly physically active or eat in more intentional and healthy ways, but their underlying reason or goal, or as you know, what I call the why, um, isn't compelling, then we may as we may as well not even finish this conversation, right? So there's an assumption in this approach that you're really doing this for some deeply personally compelling, relevant, and and relevant reason. So I'll stop there to see if you want to comment on that. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me of the work of, um, I know one of your research mentors, at least early on in your career, uh, who who I also admire greatly, Vic Strecker at, at U of M as well, around just the power of having purpose and core values that are aligned with the behavior or driving the behavior change that you're trying to make. That's fundamental. And and in in the joy choice, I say the assumption is that you have that. And so, um, you know, for people who don't, then that's the first step. Because if you don't have a compelling reason, you don't have a, the driver that's necessary. And, you know, I, I refer, you know, there's there's resources that people can look to to help them. There's um, intuitive eating. There's Vic Strecker's work. There's my first book, No Sweat. I mean, you've got to have a, something that's deeply relevant to who you are and what you care about achieving. So enough. Without enough going, st- I know you could probably write a philosophy book on this, but our external markers of success ever um, comprehensive enough or robust, durable enough wise? So if someone said, I want to look better in the mirror or I want to live longer, but it that was it. It was just like years, years, years lived or pounds on a scale or, you know, waist measurement. Do those, do you ever see those work? Uh, this is where I'm going to give that caveat again, where there are always going to be some people I, I believe from the research, the minority, the minority of the population where those types of reasons might be compelling enough to drive um, the consistent decisions day in, day out uh, that underlie sustainable change. However, the research um, is pretty robust that those types of future potentially should-based reasons for trying to adapt a healthier lifestyle will not drive sustainable change. Got it. That's what I thought you'd say, but I just wanted to make sure. So you've got the why. It is um, in the majority of people and majority of times, it's somewhat internally driven. So it's not just a, a number on a scoreboard. It is, I want to feel better, I want to be better, I want to be around longer, but not just because longevity is in vogue, but because I want to be there for my grandkids or or what have you. So then walk me through your model of, I'm looking back at my notes, I wrote down four decision disruptors is how you refer to them, if I remember right from reading. So these are the things that get in the way of in the moment making the right decision. And to be clear, in your model, the right decision isn't always to do the thing. 
So if you're traveling and you wanted to exercise, but you didn't sleep and exercising is going to cause you a ton of stress, the right decision might be to forego that workout. So it's very, very fluid. And you say that there are four things that get in the way of making a skillful decision. Can you talk us through those four? Sure. Um, but before I do that, I just want to say that um, ha- going back to having some type of plan, when people are learning how to create the consistent decision making that underlies sustainability, you know, I would consider them in learner mode, where before they have developed that internal GPS that you mentioned earlier that you have, that if you don't do your structured exercise for five days a week, it takes time for people to develop that. And so having plans in place, um, anticipating, you know, what might I want to do when I'm traveling those, I want to make sure that I'm clear that when you're learning how to do this, it, that, that can be very important. So I'm not saying not having structure is okay. I do think people need to have some type of structure because in a way that's what we used to learn from. So, Right. And, and, and I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, and, and to remind listeners, because I could do a better job reminding folks, uh, we, we teed this up within the middle ground of rigidity on the one hand and complete fluidity freedom on the other. So there's got to be some structure, but there's a difference between structure and rigidity. Because it can't just be, hey, I'm going on vacation and I've got no plan and I'm going to be immersed in restaurants and junk food and yet somehow I'm going to try to eat healthy. It's never going to happen. So you want to have a plan, but then life gets in the way. And you don't want to be so rigid that you start to stress about your whole trip because you're worried that you're not going to execute on that plan. Um, so within that context. Yes. And that's a, that's actually a perfect context to, to circle back and talk about the four decision disruptors. Um, so remember I'm, what I'm focused on is the, in the moment decisions that people have to make when things don't, cannot go according to plan. This is about, um, what the conflict, the, the culprit that arises unexpectedly, whether it's, oh no, the restaurant in the hotel that we're staying at has absolutely nothing on my plan. You know, that type of thing. What do you do? You're in the moment. You didn't anticipate it. What do you do? So let's talk about the things that can get in the way. The first one is really visceral. It's temptation. And, you know, this is something that probably everyone can relate to. It's the temptation to you know, forego your whole plan because of the delicious, you know, whatever bacon that would be calling me, um, you know, at the at the breakfast buffet. Maybe it's just all bacon and there's nothing else, you know, or the temptation. You know, I just, moved to the South, so you can you can definitely you don't have to go too far to find I, that. <laughs> well, I, I do like bacon. Um, and so uh, or the temptation to just flop down on the couch instead of go out for maybe uh, uh, a 30-minute run that you had planned. And so it's this visceral thing. And this is a real phenomenon, right? So it's not that I'm saying we negate temptation, but what I think is really helpful, and and this is true for every one of the decision disruptors, is, you know, we can't really combat something, avoid it, transcend it, overcome it, navigate it, if we don't really know what's getting in the way. So what happens is is that we've been taught to just think about, oh, it's that chocolate cake and I can't have it because it's not on my plan. But what we haven't been taught is that a lot of that temptation and desire is literally memories from our past and the sensations and sensory experiences we had over our history of eating that cake. And I think there's something very empowering about understanding that temptation to a great extent is actually coming from inside of us. Instead of giving all the power to the couch and Netflix and to the chocolate chip cookies that our friends just brought over, right? So that's the first decision disruptor and um, understanding what is really going on, I have found is very empowering for people. Um, so that's the first one. All and right. Then, let, let's move on to rebellion. Okay. And rebellion, 
you know, is also, I think, pretty intuitive for people to understand. And rebellion reflects what many of your listeners might even know, um, and I know you know about, which is reactance theory, which um, contends that human beings are motivated to reclaim their freedom when they feel it's been taken away. So this gets back to people's reasons for adopting a healthier lifestyle to begin with. If people have decided to follow a new eating plan or to join, you know, an in vogue uh, exercise system, but they're doing it because they think they should do it, or they're doing it because they feel shame, um, that that in essence is 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 the easiest way for people to feel that their freedom has been taken away you know when we do something out of a should and we are motivated to rebel against that and so understanding again if you're feeling rebellion toward the very thing that you planned and decided that's a great diagnostic that your reason or why might not be personally relevant or compelling enough. So that's the second one. I don't know if you want to comment or you want me to keep going. Let's keep going in the interest of time. This is sure. great stuff. So we've got temptation and rebellion, both pretty internal. And number three is accommodation. And, you know, all of the things about the disruptors that I'm focusing on are pretty much internal because these are the things that I found in my coaching. It's what we say to ourselves that tends to get in our way. So the third disruptor is what I call accommodation. And um, coming up with the right word, I don't know if it's the right word, but you know, I did I was challenged to figure out, well, what do I call this thing? Because it reflects people now, not sometimes but consistently all of the time subsuming your own um, healthy lifestyle plan for the needs of other people and projects that you care about. Again, it's not sometimes, it's all of the time. And I'll give you an example um, um, that's in the book of a gentleman who hired me to give a talk in a healthcare system. And, um, you know, where I was talking about ideas similar to this. And uh, he pulled me aside to let me know that, you know, despite having a wonderful gym in the building, he didn't feel comfortable um, taking time away from work to exercise. And when he did decide to exercise, he would try to kind of, um, what's the word, uh, camouflage, use the pillars as camouflage on his way there. So that's what I call, that's one example of accommodation, but this has to do with work. But then sometimes with eating people, even though they're loving their new food plan, they're feeling great from their food plan. If someone they care about offers them something or it's a, some type of celebration, people feel uncomfortable staying with their plan because they feel that they'll be viewed as not supporting or participating in the celebration. And again, it's these are all internal things that we say to ourselves. Um, but they, so that's the third um, decision trap, if you will, that people fall into. Um, and then the fourth one Can is- Can I the, interject real quick yes. there? Yes. So my first thought on that is there's a fine line between going to accommodate someone too frequently and then having the whole thing blow it up versus also being rigid. How do you think about that? A fine... And maybe there's not a fine line and maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I guess if I'm thinking about it is, hey, you know, you cannot accommodate anyone. So your friend wants to go to a fried chicken place. Yes. And you could say, no, I'm not doing that. And that could be considered rigid. Or you could accommodate and say, yeah, what the hell, we'll go to the fried chicken place and then you eat a ton of fried chicken. So how do you think about the what I call the fine line, I guess, between rigidity and over-accommodation? Right. Well, th that's where the answer is the middle ground because I'm not saying that you never accommodate. I'm saying that if you always accommodate the needs of other people, then you're in trouble. But you, the middle ground is... 
you know, if your friend always wants to go to the fried chicken place and you always go and, and eat too much, fried chicken, be not too much, quote unquote, you know, based on what your plan is, then, and you feel bad and you wish you wouldn't have done it, then I would say that your you have the accommodation um, disruptor is trapping your decisions, you know, very strongly. But if you said to your friend, you know, here's the middle ground. You say, you know, we went there the last time. Um, how about we do this? That's one example. Or, you know, the other example, which I think sometimes might be more more realistic, and I think this is where the skill set and belief system, I think this is the space that we really need to help people learn how to play in is going to the fried chicken place. And again, not all the time, but you're, you, let's just say you happen to be at the fried chicken place. Where are the compromises? What are the perfect and perfect options at the chicken place? If you're at a, a potluck, a neighborhood potluck, and you there are all these amazing things that you want to have, and you truly do want to be in the middle ground, well, how do you find that? What are the compromises and the imperfect food options? And that is the space that people have not learned to play in. And how do, how can you have maybe a drumstick, but then get a salad and not feel guilty about it, right? Or eat something that you might not normally eat at the potluck, but then, you know, maybe um, – have a lighter dinner. So that's the middle ground. And that's the perfect and perfect option that I refer to as the joy choice. Because if we're rigid and we don't let ourselves ever enjoy things, well, guess what that's going to cause? Rebellion. <laughs> and so right. that's what, right? It's like the what the hell effect. I've heard that's that exactly in behavioral right. science. That's exactly right. And interestingly, you've you're you led us perfectly into the fourth and potentially the biggest disruptor, which is perfection. And that's the all or nothing thinking that people have been socialized, indoctrinated to believe, not by anyone's fault. It's simply the way the the eating and exercise nutrition industries have evolved. I mean, fortunately, I think w the industries themselves are wayfinding to the middle ground. But unfortunately, because of the way belief systems work, um, we've had decades of messages um, internalized and, and we've been indoctrinated to have all or nothing thinking or rigidity and perfection. And, you know, that is the very reason why I created the joy choice, right? And it's not enough to say to people, you need to find the middle ground or you need to be more flexible because that's just another logical extortion. Ex not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Logical advice. Do this. You know, be, be logical. Find a, a why that's going to work for you. But we need to help people deeply want to find the middle ground. And that is why I branded it the joy choice or the perfect imperfect the perfect imperfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing, such that something is the success. And when we feel successful with something, then the next day we might do it all. But then two days later, we may have to do something again. But again, remember, and I know you care about this because you wrote about this in your book too. It's about consistency. We need to help people develop the belief system and the and the strategy set to learn how to be consistent. Love it. So before we wrap up here, um, would you say that ultimately this is a self-compassionate way to cultivate some agency? And I'm using perhaps some some uh, inside baseball terms. So agency being the ability to rely on yourself to make choices, even if those choices are hard, even if the environment is sometimes working against you. And the self-compassion to me comes from being okay with imperfection. In your book, you call it the perfect imperfection. And it's not just about being woo-woo and being kind to yourself. It's about actually having a chance at being consistent. Because as we discussed, if you try to be perfect, it's never going to work. And if you just go straight imperfection and say, what the hell? Well, that's not going to work either. Absolutely. Yes. And the one thing I want to say that I don't think we've discussed is that the research 
uh, you know, on healthy eating and exercise pretty clearly shows that it's taking this, a flexible approach that is more associated with um, um, performing the behavior over time. So this isn't just like a common sense idea. You know, when I promote things, um, I, I bring in my coaching, but, you know, I look into the literature and see, and flexible responding is the recipe for consistency according to the research. I love it. I love it. I love it. You got to be strong and you got to be flexible at the same yes. time. Yes. Yes. There's something so, there's something very um, spiritual about that. Yeah. I mean, it's non-dual and it's something that I think about all the time is we tend to think either this or that, right? Either pure discipline or pure compassion, either um, rigidity or flexibility and often the the right path forward and the consistent path forward has to be a combination of these these things that are far too often seen as polar opposites. Just like we parent and just like like we daughter and son and friend, right? Once we once we realize that we live that way in all these other areas of our lives, I think it becomes more natural. Um and and we can understand why that is the path that's going to work, not for everyone, but for more people than not. Well, Michelle, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Um, really appreciate you making the time. Listeners, Michelle's book is The Joy Choice, and I found it absolutely outstanding. I know Steve, who couldn't be here today, was texting me back and forth about the questions to ask, so he was into it too. And um Michelle obviously hit on this multiple times in the conversation, but I found this really helpful as a slight corrective to the narrative that everything has to be based on habits always. Again, we're not talking about ditching your habits. Uh, It's an approach that complements your habits and ideally expands your life because as we discussed, sometimes habits are limiting. And if you can learn to rely on yourself to make joy choices Uh, you ultimately feel better and do better. So Michelle, we loved your book. Listeners, we highly recommend you go grab a copy. Uh, They can get it wherever they get their books. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. All right, Michelle. Did I miss anything else or anything else that you'd like to add just in the last minute before, before we part? Um, before we park, I like that. Um, oh no, I said part, but park too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, I mean, I think the one thing that I would say is that if people are curious about what their what their personal traps are, that there's a quiz on my website that doesn't take very long and they can get a report about, you know, which one of those traps might be the biggest ones that they tend to fall into and then um, with some direction about how to try to sidestep them. And that's on my website too. And we'll put that in the show notes. So right. listeners, you can grab it right there. Uh, Michelle, again, it's been a pleasure. Congratulations on your new book. I thought it was wonderful. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Uh, And please stay in touch. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.